Welcome to Let's Talk Fleet Risk, a podcast for those who manage drivers and their vehicles and want to reduce road risk in their organisation. Welcome to the first episode of Let's Talk Fleet Risk for 2023. In the first quarter of this year, the Driving for Better Business campaign is taking a deeper look into the area of fitness to drive. We'll be sharing content on driver impairment, fatigue and well-being. In this episode, we're going to look at drug driving at work, and I'm joined by two guests. We have Ian Lewin, who is the Managing Director of DTEC International. DTEC supports hundreds of fleet operators on policy, screening and testing for drink and drugs. And they also supply all 43 British police forces with the drug wipe roadside testing kits. And I also have Leslie O'Brien, who is the Managing Director of Freightlink Europe a haulage firm based in Halifax, West Yorkshire, and one of DTEC's corporate clients. Leslie was awarded an OBE in 2020 for her work in the transport industry and is going to talk to us about her personal experience of implementing screening and testing within her own firm. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello. Ian, perhaps I can start with you. Can you give us an idea of how prevalent drug driving is and why employers should be concerned? Um, of course, yes. Um, the The basic message about the prevalence of drug driving is that it's, I believe, more than drink driving. And it's just not analyzed or detected enough. Uh, and, and, and to back that up, some recent figures released from Merseyside Police uh, covering the pre-Christmas um, drink drug drive campaign. So this, this time it was expanded to six weeks because uh, adding on a couple of weeks for the World Cup. Uh, they made 500, over 500 arrests in that six-week period. And the message comes from the fact that 350 of those were drug drivers, 150 drink drivers. So that shows you some of the proportions. And to bring this into context on the workplace, the figures again from Merseyside Police in 2020 showed that 50% of their detections that year were either drivers at work in a company vehicle or they would be driving for their work the next day. So 50% was quite shocking. The year after, again, that was repeated with something in the high 30%. So it's very prevalent in work time and work vehicles. And what sort of drugs are we talking about? Can you tell us a little about that and how common they are and and how long impairment can last? How long do the effects last? Okay. What we're talking about here in principle is uh, not medications, but we're talking about illegal drugs. And 80, 85% of that is cannabis and then cocaine. Cocaine is very much more prevalent. uh, And in the workplace environment, people use cocaine to stay awake. Um, Cannabis then to calm down at night after shift and and, and, uh, 
just just basically to take the edge off the the, the cocaine they've taken. Um, there is a, a third one, which I'll go back to medication. The third thing that we see from all of our corporate clients is codeine. And codeine, yes, is a medication, but it is the most abused medication on the planet. And rather than using it for a couple of three days, uh, people do start using it permanently and start getting addicted to it and increasing the amount that they're on. Again, all the time, they all three of those drugs impair you in different ways. So the cannabis would be slowing your brain down, your, your, your body clock, you react much, much slower if something's going on in front of you, out through the windscreen. Do you slow down in time? Do you um, take avoidance action or not? Whereas cocaine, on the other hand, is speeding you up and you're more likely to take risks and you're more likely to think you can achieve an overtake or you're going to dive for a gap and all the time increasing the likelihood of an accident. Um, and if, if people are sort of taking some of these drugs socially, um, I, I imagine quite a lot of them think, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, it's my own time, I'll take that. But some of these, the effects can last quite a while, can't they? Yeah, in, in the same way as most people have had a drink or three and understand the effect of a hangover, your body reacts in very similar ways to drugs. Um, and some of those reactions are just like alcohol, where you say, oh, well, I'm going to have a hair of the dog and I'm going to have some more. Now, whether you deem that full-blown addiction or dependence, but it is definitely multiple use. And so it's rare that personal private time use is ever able to be separated from um, when, when people are at work. And of course, in this environment we're discussing here, we're, we're talking about transit vans doing 70 mile an hour plus down the motorway, or we're talking about 40 tons of, of, of HGV. Uh, there's, there's a lot of implications to that graying of, of, of taking drugs in my personal time. Mm. So the driver, obviously, if he's caught with um, drug driving, that, that's basically his, his license gone. He's responsible for that. How, how much responsibility does an employer have for someone driving for work who's then caught drug driving? That's, that's a very good point, Simon. Um, the Road Traffic Act 1988 is very clear um, that if you are caught drug driving or drink driving, then there is a minimum time of ban of 12 months. Um, and and, and, and that's, that's put through. That's very much the responsibility of the driver. That then would impinge on any other additions to their license and what the traffic commissioner would say about this. And the traffic commissioner would have an opinion with not just the driver, but with the company. Um, as far as the, the company... We're looking at Health and Safety at Work Act. We're looking at several other bits of legislation. But in the worst case, where we have a death, we're talking about the Corporate Manslaughter Act. And with that, the company would definitely be complicit. And the judge would be looking at who was involved and how much effort the company had made to put prevention steps in place. And if they hadn't, 
then individuals, persons in that company would then be considered complicit and they would be prosecuted and personally fined. Not a, not a case of breaking out the company checkbook, but it would be the traffic manager and or directors that would potentially go to jail and be selling the house to pay the fines. So clearly that's not a position that any employer wants to find themselves in. So Le Leslie, if I can come to you, you've implemented a screening and testing process within your business a few, a few years ago now. What made you decide to, to go down that route? Yes, it, it was about two or three years ago, and I was at um, an industry meeting with the DVSA and one of the trade bodies, and the focus of the meeting was on vehicle safety and maintenance, but it came to the end of the meeting, and someone at the meeting, a small operator, said, well, the real problem impacting on safety on our roads is drivers who may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol and the lady recounted a story whereby um, all of her small fleet was occupied on one contract and the contractor insisted on drugs and alcohol testing and overnight over 50% were found to be positive and that impacted on her being able to uh, service that contract and she lost half of her drivers overnight. And at the same meeting, a large operator echoed those statistics. And I thought, my goodness, this is this is frightening. And we all think that we we know our team, we know our drivers, and, and we would know, and, and they're all nice people, and, and it couldn't happen to us. But clearly that was something that that made me start thinking, I need to be doing something about this. I need to be testing uh, not only um, my drivers but office workers who are, who are driving and and have a, a total culture of wanting to be drugs and alcohol free so that's when I started on the journey and looking at the variety of providers out there and of course there are a lot of providers you do have a choice um, but for me um, I finally went with, with DTEC and the reason for that was not that they were the cheapest, um, but A, they were providing the police and so therefore I presume that the police had done their due diligence, but also I wanted to have a system that was legally defensible in, in court. There's no point going through all this if, if you, you find someone who is impaired and you can't carry on to take action um, that can be backed up. So yeah. that was my journey. So if, if testing isn't something you've done before, I, I guess one of your primary concerns is going to be how your drivers are going to react to this. So, um, yeah, how, how, do you do, how did you deal with that? How did you get driver engagement? Well, well, like a lot of companies out there, we actually had a drug and alcohol policy. And, and that was their power given as time of their employment, part of their contract. So we had this. We were giving fitness to drive questionnaires. And as part of that questionnaire, it did say, can we do drug and alcohol testing? So we had all this in place, but we're actually not doing anything. So the first step was to hold a driver's meeting. And as part of that meeting, we told them what we were going to do and why we were doing it. 
and we were going to give them a month's grace. So they had a month to clean themselves up or come and speak to us for, for help or, or, or whatever. And we had two resignations. One of them, I don't know why that person resigned. We, we he, he didn't say, but the other one was quite clear that they had a drugs problem and they would be found uh, positive. And that was a real eye opener because had you asked me to, to choose a driver that I thought could have a problem, I would never have chosen this driver. So the message for people out there is you, you think you know your teams, you think you know, it, it will be the least likely. And so we didn't, because we'd spoken to the drivers, because we had systems in place, we did review our policy and tighten it up. Um, we didn't have much kick, we didn't have much kickback from the from the team. I think it's all as always, it's down to communication. Absolutely. So Ian, Leslie's obviously put a lot of effort into getting this right, and she values the support that she's had from, from your team at DTEC. I I see many companies that have a driving for work policy which explicitly forbids drink or drug driving exactly as uh, Leslie said she had but they don't do any testing but I also encounter many companies that don't even have a policy so what does good look like uh, in this area? What does good look like? Um, I suppose uh, Freightlink is the perfect client. Uh, we, we, we tend to hope we're seen as a partner rather than a supplier customer relationship we try to to make ourselves available and, and and help in any way now leslie asked for advice and help and then listened so with that they looked at how it would fit into their organization and implemented what is a clear process uh, definition of clear, clear to the employees. They understand what the rules are in Freightlink. So that's the main thing. I see so many policies that are hundreds of pages, well, not hundreds, but quite literally, maybe you know 30 or 40 pages of stuff. An employee will not read that. I also see policies that might be half a dozen pages, and it very clearly gets across that whether you call it zero tolerance or what, whatever, drugs and alcohol will not be tolerated in this organization or on this site. So the way we see good practice, um, and I suppose it's taken, taken us 27, 28 years now to, to, to get this clear, is we have policy, we have education, we have uh, a deterrent, and then detection. So we have just discussed policy, getting it clear for the employee to understand, getting education out there so that they understand why they shouldn't be doing it um, and, 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 and what to do if, if, if there's questions, who to ask. We then have the deterrent, which I look at as being carrot and stick. Um, we'll dangle the carrot for you, but make no bones about it. It's on the end of a big stick. Um, and then we detect. Now, of course, everybody thinks it's all just about the detection. That's when the drug wipe comes into its fore. As, as Leslie said, it's, um, it's police standard 
specification around the world, not just in the UK. And yes, we, we then de detect at a screening stage that there is a non-negative. And from that, we would then go into a, a legally defensible confirmation process. So um, the issue is, if we detect too many times, then, we're, then we've either got the policy wrong or we've got insufficient education or deterrent. So we, this is why, where the partnership comes in. We need to know what uh, a company's results are so we can work those through with them and say, okay, well, do we need to modify something? I think you just heard Leslie saying that they've modified their policy various points in time in the past because they've realized, well, this needs to be clearer. This needs to be absolute. This might need a bit of flexibility. Um, and, and I suppose that's what good looks like. And the main thing is good is doing something, not just having that piece of paper that you think you can rely on. You need to be screening. Nowadays, with the, the level of drugs that are out there, you need to be making sure that you are looking and that the employees know you're looking and then you, you treat them, anybody that's uh, taking drugs, and say, not on my watch, not in my company. You, you mentioned education um, in that response. What, what are the important points that we need to get across to drivers? Um, if, if you ever talk to anybody that's smoking cannabis, they will always defend it to the hilt. Um, I'm not saying anything personal about whether you want to smoke cannabis or not, but it does not mix with driving. Now, it doesn't mix with driving your personal car, with your family in the car. It doesn't mix with the transit van. It doesn't mix with, with a bus. It doesn't mix with, with, a, with a heavy. Um, it just it simply does not. You wouldn't be taking it. You wouldn't be paying good money for it if it didn't have an effect on you. And those effects are seen in your ability to drive to a standard that's uh, required, required in law, as the police would put. So education is got to be maybe a little bit of explanation, toolbox talks, we, things we, we help with, the team at DTEC. Um, we can put together sort of a five-minute discussion. Um, I'm, I'm just sat in the office in front of um, four posters that we did with Break, the road safety charity, and it's all about education. And that education is you get it wrong and you, you lose your license, you're probably going to lose your livelihood, which has implications on your mortgage and everything else. So it's the education is simply it doesn't mix with this 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 role in life, this these jobs. So Ian, there's obviously um some investment required to do testing and screening, but presumably you'd be able to recoup that in other areas if it's proven to improve driver safety. Most definitely. Um just taking a cold hard look at the situation and putting it in numbers. If, if you had a vehicle that was involved in an incident, whether it's that's such a big incident that it's a write-off and uh, a driver in hospital or something, you've, you, you've lost that vehicle and you've lost that driver for a, a good period of time, which might impinge on a contract that you've got. It just adds to your complications and all, all of that's calculatable. You can add that up. 
On the other hand, it might be something as simple as somebody's taking the mirror off a, one of our good customers um, off, off a bus. And that means that the vehicle's got to come in, the vehicle's grounded, they have to send off another vehicle to do that service. Um, they then have to get the replacement wing mirror. The wing mirror's then got to get bolted on. So you've got technician time as well. And then you've, then you've got the, the discussion with the driver as to why this happened and management uh, discussions going on. And was this a, an incident? Why did it happen? Um, all of this takes time and money. It's costing you in hard cash for the components. It's costing you in overheads. It's costing, and it's not very far off before you realize that working with, with DTEC or any other supplier might have removed that. And all of these unexplained incidents, this lack of judgment, uh, maybe, maybe there's a reason for it. And maybe you should iron that out of your, your company. So um, customers stay with us because they realize that is a, it's a financial thing. Then you have, as, as Leslie's pointed out, um, there's, the, there's the social consequences and whether you as a director can uh, sleep at night thinking you're doing the right thing or whether you're burying your head in the sand, hiding behind a, a paper policy. Yeah. So, Leslie, if I can come back to you as we as we wrap up, I, I was wondering what your personal experience has been after you began this screening process. So, you know, how have the drivers responded? What did you learn from the process? And ultimately, has it given you the confidence as an employer um, and as a fleet operator that you were looking for? Well, at Freightlink Europe, we've really kind of developed a culture of um, safety and zero tolerance of drugs and alcohol. And this culture um, has really impacted how everybody works. But despite that, despite everything you do, so um, new employees know that before they even take a vehicle out, they're going to be drugs and alcohol tested. There will be random tests throughout the, the year. They will be with cause if they've had an, an, an incident or we think there's reason to test. So with all that, you think you drive all of it out. Um, but sadly, just before Christmas, we had, um, which will be called a non-negative, which so a positive test for an employee who was um, impaired. And I'll reiterate, it's the one you think you will not have a problem with. It is heart-wrenching just before Christmas to find that you have someone who is possibly going to cause an incident on the road, possibly injure someone, probably injure them themselves, probably write off my vehicle and it's a bad time of year, but that person, um, that person has to go. And what having this, these systems and policies and procedures in place they actually make that dismissal for gross misconduct far easier because that person knows that you have everything in place. And before you start going saying, right, we're calling that internal, external body in to do a urine test, they actually walk. And in the policy, walking is an admission that, you know, you, you are in, in, impaired. So um, it's helped in our culture that people don't even come to us 
if they are, you know, if they've got a, a problem. But even then, you can and will have a, a, an issue. And it's really, really important that you you keep reiterating the message. We are not experts, we, you know. So you know, we've talked to with Ian about educating. We have all of our DTEC posters uh, up. But if someone came to us, we can call upon upon the experts. And you know, for for my mind, um, I think it should be a legal obligation that if you are employing people who are operating machinery or are on the road, it should be a legal obligation that they are tested. And then maybe we could reduce these statistics that Ian has spoken about and make our roads safer. I think that's a salutary lesson uh, and a, a really good point to reinforce there, that even the commitment you've shown to this and doing it properly over the last three years uh, and the awareness amongst your driving population that you still had that non-negative test and it was from someone who you would have least expected. It really shows to everybody that th this isn't something that you can take lightly. Everybody really needs to be um having some kind of testing policy in place. So thanks for sharing that with us, Leslie. And thank you so much for joining me uh, on this discussion. I'll put details of both your companies in the show notes and also links to some of the free resources uh, that DTEC offer that we uh, we spoke about earlier, uh, which will help you understand the key issues and, and how to review your own policies and procedures as well. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, Ian and Leslie, thank you very much for, for being on the show. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure. If you manage drivers and their vehicles and you face similar issues to those discussed in this podcast, there are links in the show notes to some useful resources on the Driving for Better Business website, and these are all free to access. If you enjoyed the conversation, please don't forget to hit subscribe so you know when the next episode is released. And please also give us a five-star review as this helps us to get up the podcast rankings and makes it more visible to others who might also find it useful. You can follow us, that's Driving for Better Business, on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. And most importantly, please help us to spread the word. All our resources are free for those who manage fleets and their employees who drive for work. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Fleet Risk and I look forward to welcoming you to the next episode. Brought to you by Driving for Better Business.